Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. As I mentioned, we are starting into Lent. And traditionally, the Lenten season is begun, begins with the story of the temptation of Jesus in the garden, or in, not in the garden, the opposite of the garden, in the wilderness. But as we look into this, I... I think it's interesting because one, it's kind of hard because as modern people, we have very weird relationships and understandings of, of the devil, of Satan. We often tend to go on different extremes. We tend to either be in a tradition in which we kind of just deny his existence or become obsessed with devils and attribute everything to Satan. It reminds me of um, learning about there's, there's uh, this lizard that has, has two different responses when something comes up to it. It either plays dead or it puffs itself up really big. And I think that's Kind of the two extremes that the adversary, the enemy, plays. But what's interesting, too, is when we look into this passage, it, it is a passage, it's about Jesus. But unlike last week, when we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus, which was all about showing how distinct and unique Jesus is, actually, the temptation of Jesus is in some ways the opposite. It's about in his incarnation, is in his incarnation, his connection to us. And though the specifics of Jesus' temptation are unique to Jesus and his situation, I think the temptation or attacks from the adversary that he faces are the ones that are common to us all. And so, on this first Sunday of Lent, I want to look at this passage, not just sticking with Mark, but the, the greater narrative. Um, so within the lectionary, if you, if you know anything about a tr- the, the lectionary tradition, is they try to draw from the different Gospels each year. Um, Matthew and Mark explain what's happening, or Matthew and Luke explain what's happening. This, this year, we land on Mark, and Mark's very succinct. Uh, so I'm going to also draw from Matthew and Mark in this. But I want to look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by looking at the nature of the temptation, but primarily what it reveals about the temptation and attacks that we all face. Focusing on the goal of those attacks and temptations. Which I'm going to show, and I believe, is to question God's word 
and to abandon Christ's gospel. So first, as we step in looking at this goal and the nature of Jesus' temptation, I want to make a quick note that what is translated tempted doesn't necessarily mean what we you always think about as temptation. It can. But usually we think about temptation is like... You know, I don't want to eat chocolate, but I'm tempted, so I'm going to. You know what I mean? Like, it's tempting us to do things that are bad and everything else. But the word that is translated temptation or to, to be tempted, it's used more commonly to mean to be tested, to be put through a trial. That can be a test or a trial that points towards sinful activity, but not always. It's challenging something. It's attacking something. And if we look at the temptations, I'm going to draw from Matthew's account. Matthew writes that the tempter came and said to him, which is Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then there's a second test or attack or temptation. It says, then the devil took him, which is Jesus, to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And what's interesting is that after that, he, Satan quotes scripture. But you see within these temptations, not focusing on the bread or the temple, but what is happening here is that Satan, the devil, the adversary, is trying to challenge and question God's word. Often we think, and I hear it talked about, it's like, oh, he's challenging God's word as which, in, which is scripture. But I don't think that's actually what's happening here because he just quoted scripture. And it's not just entering into a theological debate. This isn't just about saying like, well, I have to memorize scripture so I can combat the devil with scripture or anything else. The word that, God, that Satan is trying to attack and to call in question is revealed by the question... Yes. If you are the Son of God. The word that he is questioning is the word that we had just read, the word that was just spoken over Jesus in his baptism. The word of this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. He had just heard the father speak that over him. And immediately the devil goes and says, if you really are the son of God. Same old tactic. He's sly, but he's not very creative. Because it's another way of saying what he had said in the garden to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? See, Satan's attack is an attack on God's word. It's God's word that was spoken over Jesus just moments before, during his baptism. And you notice within this, what the temptation is, is to question God's word of who Jesus is. Speaking into Jesus, this is who you are. Words that were spoken of Jesus before Jesus had accomplished anything yet. And he questions it and offers the temptation of prove it. If 
you're the son of God, prove it. Turn bread to stone. If you're really the son of God, you can do it, prove it. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Because if you're the son of God, he'll protect you. Prove it. And this might seem innocuous enough, but there's something very sinister happening here. Because in a sly way, the enemy is trying to tempt Jesus to abandon what he came to do. So you have to remember that Jesus was not incarnate. He did not come and dwell among us to prove his divine nature by acts of power. But instead to humble himself, becoming fully man, just like you and I. That through his perfect obedience, withstanding the temptation we all fell for, he might redeem us. As Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says, Though he, who is Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, just use, for example, the throwing himself off of the pinnacle of the temple. If you know anything about the first century, there was never a time in which there weren't large gatherings of people around the temple. If Jesus would have done so, God certainly would have cared for him. And he would have gathered a massive, massive following. Pretty sure of it. I mean, I don't know what it would look like. I don't know if, if the people would see the angels or not. But either way, it's either Jesus would be like, oh, man, and then all of a sudden he's floating. You know what I mean? Or he's surrounded by angels. It's like everybody would be like, we need to follow this guy. But that's not how he was going to build his following. So even if you notice through the gospel accounts, every time Jesus performed a miracle... Even as we read with the transfiguration, what does he do? He says, don't tell anybody. Tell no one. Because gathering a large following by proving his divinity was not what he had come to do, but he instead, he laid aside equality with God that he might be fully one of us. That he might live a life in our stead. But ultimately, what, what we see is happening here is that the enemy is trying to turn Jesus from the mission he has come to accomplish, which is the gospel. Because after those two didn't work, he moves on to one third and final attempt. And again, in Matthew, it says, Again, the devil took him, who is Jesus, to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you. Now, there's different views of what Satan is actually tempting with, because I kind of struggle with this, because really, like, like Jesus is going to worship the devil? 
But there's different ideas on, on what, what Satan is trying to, to offer him. And, and, and I started kind of working through those things. And then I realized that my sermon was going to be an hour and a half long. So I cut all that section out. But one thing that I do know and I, I believe to be true is what seems to be clear is that Satan is trying to get Jesus to lay hold of what is his. But to do so by way of bypassing the cross. So we read... In our epistle reading, all of those authorities, all of those will be submitted to Christ through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. Satan's trying to offer that reality, but by not having to go through the cross. And this isn't the last time that Satan tries in some way get Jesus to bypass the cross. He just becomes a little bit more subtle with it. After revealing to the disciples that Jesus was going to be put to death, after sharing that, after telling them of his coming crucifixion, it says that then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Almost the exact words that Jesus used in the wilderness. Because he recognized that same attempt. This time, not the enemy speaking, whether into his ears or into his mind, but coming through the mouth of his beloved friend, Peter. And then remember, if you do the, the crucifixion of Jesus in the mocking, all of these voices of strangers mocking Jesus, mocking Jesus. Saying, if you are the king of the Jews, you claim to be the son of God. If you are the Messiah, if you can save others, save yourself. Prove it. A last-ditch effort to get Jesus off that cross. To abandon the gospel mission. But what I really want to focus on here is an important connection that we need to make. We see in the narrative that Jesus received baptism repentance. A baptism that he did not need. He was cast out to the desert to face the temptation that we all succumb to. Taking our place and becoming one of us. The imagery here of being cast out, actually the language in Mark's gospel when it says that the, 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 the spirit took him out or cast him out is the exact same Greek word that in the Septuagint is used to speak of Adam and Eve when they were thrown out into the wilderness. He's standing in our stead. It's, rep- it's showing Jesus to be one of us so that then, through that, he would go and endure the cross on our behalf. Endure the cross so that then, by grace, we might be baptized into him. And by sheer grace through faith, we then are united which means 
that Satan will test and tempt us just as he did Christ. He's vindictive. He's sly. He's not very innovative. Continues the same practice. And just looking at the Christian experience, both mine as a, as a minister for many, many, many years with working with others, but then reading the stories of Christians throughout the centuries in all different cultures and time, this pattern plays out again and again. A pattern of baptism, then wilderness. A pattern of God's word, of love, his pleasure and delight immediately turning into a voice calling all of that into question. That realization of God's mercy and grace and love through the gospel, and then a day later, an a, a attack. Is that really true? It can't be true about you. Are you want to think that's true? Prove it. So you can't because you're not. You have the same pattern, but then also the same temptation or attack. See, the thing is, is the picture that we often get depicted in movies and films and in our own imagination is the idea of of temptation, of of the enemy, of, of the devil, of Satan, tempting us to do evil and immoral things. Like this evil voice saying, you know, Go beat up old people. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, do horrible things, you know? Like, maybe. Not usually. But sometimes it is a temptation to turn into sin. But that is never, ever the point. The goal is always to question God's word of grace. To call into question our identity in Christ. The call to abandon the gospel. It's interesting. Scripture has many names for Satan. Actually, and none of those names are actually really formal names. Like Satan just means adversary. It's the Greek word for adversary. Uh, devil, diablos, is just a Greek word for slanderer. So they're actually just kind of descriptions of the reality. You know, forever I thought it was like, his name is Satan. You know, Just the same as like whenever I was younger, I thought that Christ was Jesus' last name. Like he was the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. And, but it's like, no, it's just a description of what he is. But it, two terms that are used so often is that he is the tempter. And then he is the great accuser of the brethren. And so that temptation for sin is never for the sake of sin, but always for the purpose of accusation. I'm sure most of us have walked through this at some point. I do frequently. Just do it. You deserve it. Just go there. Just look that up. Just a few more drinks. You work hard, you deserve this. And then as soon as you fall, that's not the point. No, it's then, look at you. You call yourself a Christian? You pretend to be a freaking priest and you do that? 
immediately. The point is to call into question the grace of God, his gospel, who he says we are, that external word. But often temptation isn't a temptation to sin, but a temptation to do good things. Good things, but in response to the gospel word being called into question. It's so much more subtle. Call yourself a child of God. You need to be doing more. You need to be doing, you need to be reading your Bible more if you say you're a child of God. You need to be evangelizing more. You need to be serving more. You need to be caring for more people. You need to be giving more. You, you need to prove it. If you're going to claim to be a beloved child of God, you say you're a Christian, we'll prove it. In both forms, whether it's proving it or immorality leading to accusation are attempts, just like it was for Jesus, to abandon the gospel, to question the sufficiency of God's grace. Prove it. I mean, no, you're a good Protestant. By grace through faith, we are saved. And by grace alone. You can't truly rest on that. You've got to prove it. You've got to prove you're worthy of that title that was bestowed upon you. Or on the flip, when the accusation comes, you know what you did last night? Oh, you're going to come and receive the Eucharist. You're going to come and worship the next morning, acting like you're a good Christian? No. You want to hold on to that fantasy word that you are beloved and that God's actually pleased with you? No, that can't be true. Look at what you've done. All questioning the sufficiency of Christ and his gospel. That his external word about us can never be enough. So whatever form it takes, accusation, approving it, and whether it be this voice in your own mind, or from the mouth of a dear friend like Peter, or strangers and onlookers mocking you, it's important that we realize and remember that ultimately by grace through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, being washed in the waters of baptism, God speaks over us the gospel word. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I deeply love, in whom I'm very well pleased. And I can tell you that the devil sure as hell does not want you or I to hold, lay hold of the liberating significance of God's word spoken over us. So then how do we respond? I love the example of Martin Luther 
the great German reformer. One is, there's multiple accounts, and he speaks of how um, whenever uh, Satan would, uh, would uh, assail him, saying, who are you? Look how horrible you are. Look how corrupt. Getting him to try to, to, to lose sight of the grace and mercy that is his in Christ and Christ alone. It's said that he would often uh, fart at Satan. <laughs> And he probably did that because also we know that Luther drank copious amounts of beer. So he was probably very gaseous. And so he was just making use of, of his special abilities. Um, it reminds me of uh, if you've ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't know if you've ever seen it. The French guys, they're, they're standing there mocking them. Like, I fart in your general direction. But, okay, but no, there's actually a more serious one that I think is valuable that Luther said. Is he would always say to himself, remember your baptism. Not because it had some magical power in and of itself, but it was a mark of God's external word about him. That in his baptism into Christ, he is joined in Christ in his baptism, and so he is reminding himself, remember those words spoken over you that were spoken over Jesus. That were yours by sheer grace. I think it helps to take seriously the words of the author of Hebrews. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is why the ancient pattern of worship of the church, I think, is so important. It's not because of like robes and and pretty things and feeling cool and ancient. None of this stuff matters. But the rhythm is, I think, valuable. The church has been worshiping a certain way for 2,000 years. It's important because it disarms the enemy because it is a rhythm of confession, of repentance, and remembrance of Christ's absolution and grace given to us. It disarms the half-truths of the enemy. Where we come and we confess our sins where we will say, we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs. Essentially looking and spitting back at the face of the enemy, saying, you say I suck. Yeah, I I kind of do in many ways. And yet then we receive the word of absolution, of grace, being reminded of Christ's gospel through the word of God read and through through the sacrament of communion and the absolution spoken over us. That no matter what, We are his beloved, and we may draw near to his throne of grace. I'll be honest, that's why my preaching is so repetitive. One, because I'm not that creative. Um, No, but it's because ultimately what we really need to hear and be reminded of is that gospel word that's true about us. The enemy may utilize many different avenues. A voice in your head, a snake in a garden, your best friend. One of the things that he can also use that is very effective is the pulpit. 
And I don't speak ill of, of any of my brothers and sisters that preach from the pulpit. Um, so I'm not speaking of anything individually, but I will say be very, very leery of preaching that solely focuses on what, what you must do instead of what Jesus did. Because it's very easy to be like Satan and quote some scriptures and have a sermon turn out to be essentially saying, if you're a Christian, prove it. And I think this is why community matters. One thing I've learned over the years is that we really suck at evangelizing ourselves. I preach the gospel all the time. If you've ever met with me to talk, man, I want you to know the gospel. Throughout the week, I really struggle to preach the gospel to myself. And I think that's true of most of us. And it's especially true in the midst of attacks, calling in question that gospel, calling into question who we are in Christ. We need community because we need to be constantly evangelized and we need each other to point us back to that gospel truth. And so whenever, and it certainly will, But whenever that damned enemy of God's beloved children comes with the same old rote routine, remember that no matter what form it takes, his goal is to call into question God's word spoken over you and the gospel truth that is yours by grace through faith in Christ alone. And simply do what Jesus did. Shut up. (laughs) Be away with you. Or if you're particularly gassy, do what Luther did. (laughs) Might be fun. But more importantly, take heed to the words of Hebrews. Press into the gospel. Because that's what he's trying to turn us away from. Lay hold of the grace that is yours and with confidence draw near to God's throne of grace and mercy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free.